Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. LBIC family. So several years ago, I was in a grad class. It was an education class, but it was, le- it was taught by a psychology professor. And typical to psychology professors, she kept citing these studies. Like she had this little picture of the Pope hanging on the board because she said that studies show that when the Pope is present, that people are more honest. Or if she would say things like, oh, if you put a picture of your child in your wallet, then it's more likely to be returned to you if you lose it. So one thing this professor also did was it was a week-long class, and each day she, um, she had this table at the front of the room, and she said everybody can sign up for a day that they bring something beautiful to put on that table. She, again, cited several studies that said that um, aesthetic experiences contribute to improvement of memory and lower stress levels and increased social connection. But beyond that, she asked each person who brought something beautiful at the beginning of class just to share a little bit about the story behind their beautiful thing. I had never experienced such transparency and honesty and connection in a one-week class with people I had never met before. We laughed and we cried together, and it felt like a holy space. I began to explore what that would look like at my church. How could I get to hear the stories and get to know the people of my church family? And our beautiful thing service was born, and it has continued I don't know how many years. But if you happen to have brought a beautiful thing to contribute to our social connection and aesthetic experience, Feel free to just bring it on up here, even if you forgot earlier, just put it on that table. But here at LBIC, we are a community being transformed by the love of Jesus. And the stories you hear this morning are stories of us, of our community, of our family, in the process of being transformed by Jesus. We will tell and we will retell these stories to remind us that we are part of something that's bigger than ourselves. I'm going to ask Lloyd, our first person to share, to make his way up here. And I won't introduce each person, but we do have an order to the morning. I know that your beautiful thing or someone else's story might trigger a thought in your mind, and we would love to hear that. Save it for next year. No, just kidding. Uh, Share those stories with each other, but we don't have time to bring random stories up here this morning. Um, I will give us one more quote to frame our morning. Stories cut through the noise and chaos of daily life with a melody that can be sung and resung. With no further ado, I invite Lloyd to come share your story of a beautiful thing. Oh 
Speaking of beautiful things, the song we just sang, 10,000 Reasons, is one of my favorite songs, and I plan to have it be sung at my memorial service. So my story is uh, probably more than 50 years old, or not 50 years old, but 50 years in length uh, regarding our family. Uh, we've been married 58 years in September. We have three children, Lisa, Lynn, and Larry, and we purposely named that because our, our two names are Lois and Lloyd, so we named uh, our children that way. So now, when they were still living at home, if we got a piece of mail addressed to L. Melhorn, who, who are they talking about? Uh, so, once I was through college and volunteer service, we were assigned to pastor out in, uh, in Michigan. And, at the same, and then we moved out there and so forth. And at that same time, we were ready to have a family. But we could not uh, get pregnant. So we did some counseling and some other things, and that never happened. So then we decided to do uh, foster care. And when we, uh, and we had a family of three children, early elementary age, uh, live at our home. And then uh, in the mean, while that was taking place, one of the members of our church said they have a relative in another county that has a, a girl, that a little girl that needs to have a home. So we pursued that and uh, proceeded with the adoption. This, this girl, well, we named her Lisa, uh, had a bad, bad upbringing, or starting, I should say. Her parents did not want her, so uh, when, when she was pregnant, they did not want the, the child. The father was kind of out of the picture, and then it, while she was still with her mother, uh, she was kept in, in her crib or whatever for, for numerous, numerous hours at a time. So the great aunt decided to take her in and uh, they decided that they weren't, or they didn't want to raise this, children, this child because of their age. So they thought they'd proceed to put it up for adoption. And uh, so we pursued that and, and proceeded with the adoption. She, and when she came to live with us, she was two years and eight months old. And surprisingly enough, uh, Seven months after she came to live with us, we got pregnant. Uh, so of course, and then oh, also um, taking Lisa into our home, we decided it wasn't good to have foster children because we didn't want them to be going in and out. We thought that would be insecure for our new adopted child. Coming to her uh, teenage years, she, be she became very angry and unsettled, and uh, as sometimes adopted child children do. So her great aunt um, arranged to have her meet her mother and her sister. That settled her down. That, that settled her down quite a bit. Uh, 
and, and she still corresponds with her sister, but her mother didn't want to have anything, anything more to do with her. In having that, uh, our new girl in the house and so forth, I would play with her and so on, but I could never, she never, she held back getting really emotionally involved with me. And uh, when her great aunt and uncle took her, of course, the, the uncle was an older man. And she liked older men uh, because of that, but didn't like younger men. And so uh, then through the years, our relationship was pretty good and we took care of the way we best thought how. Moving up to a number of years later uh, with our younger son who was married and uh, his wife uh, was unfaithful to him. So, and this uh, caused him to uh, kind of have a mental pr problem. It, it, tri it triggered uh, a mental illness of bipolar and uh, narcissism. So he was very uh, crazy, I guess I could say, at times, and, and did weird things with his car. Uh, one time, we got a call from Dr. John Kreider and said, sorry to hear your son's in jail. And we didn't even know that. He, he didn't want to tell us that he was in jail, but because of his, some erratic things he's done with his car. Uh, so he was in jail, jail so, several, several days, and he checked himself out, which he shouldn't have done, but he didn't want to be in jail. So then he continued to uh, do crazy things with his car and, and other things too. So one night, without his lights turned on in the car, he drove around Manheim Square the opposite way numerous times, and the police uh, stopped him, or tried to stop him, but he evaded them and got away from them. Uh, and then the police put out an APB for anyone who sees him to call the police on him. Well, he came home. He came home at a time, and. What do you do as a father? Do you call the police on your child? And we felt like this was the right thing to do at the time. So the policeman came and he locked himself in his room and they broke the door to get in to take him to jail. And he was in jail for uh, two weeks plus. And then uh, that helped to, to settle him down quite a bit because he didn't want to go to jail again. Um, so then he, he was able to get a job and he, in Riceville, he got an apartment in Riceville, but he liked to come home every so often, so he'd come home about one and a half days a week. And in, in the doing that with his mental illness, he was difficult to work with and, and live with, and sometimes there were shouting matches between him and I uh, with the way he was treating mom. Then uh, moving on to our son, Lynn, uh, 
was married, had two, gave us two, two wonderful grandchildren. But when the grandchildren were in grade school, his wife decided she didn't love him anymore, and so she was unfaithful to him. So then he went to rent an apartment big enough to take care of the two children when they lived with him. Uh, and with the other, other things and, and trying to ha handle financially, he decided he didn't want to, or he, he didn't want to live. And he had, during this time, he had uh, five hospital visits and, and civil counseling. And he said to me, I wish I could have a marriage like you and your mom do, which, you know, touched me pretty good. Uh, and also another time he said, I wish you could, I could handle money the way you do. So during these times, Lois and I would look at each other and say, what have we done wrong? What, what can we do to make things better here? So then moving on further uh, down the years, uh, when my wife had a 65th birthday dinner at a restaurant, all of our children were there, and Lisa, our um, adopted daughter, was there, and in her birthday card to me, she wrote a nice long apology for the way she treated us through the years, and of course that meant a lot. And now she's, uh, she was more affectionate to me than before uh, after, after that apology. Of course, now I'm, at that point, I was an older man too. <laughs> so, uh, and then moving to Larry, when we had our uh, car accident, a little over two years ago, this shook him up quite a bit because he didn't want to lose us because he depended on us quite a bit uh, at the time. So, uh, and also he lost his job uh, at, during that time as well. So he decided to go to counseling and this has helped quite a bit. He only comes to our house uh, half a day a week and he's a lot calmer. Uh, and so he said to mom, he says, Dad, don't yell at me anymore. And I said to mom, you know, it's because he has calmed down that I don't yell at him, and he's more cooperative now than, than at that time. Uh, so the, the, the relationship with Larry was bet, a lot better, although we still have a lot of ways to go with him. Once Lynn got over his, her, uh, depression and not wanting to live, he he found a found a job, and then uh, still looking for a girlfriend, and so he finally found one, but he would never bring her around to us and talk real great about this this girl. But he never uh, brought around to meet us. So I think maybe he was scared to do that in case something didn't work out like 
like the other ones didn't work out. So uh, during our anniversary week, we go to the store in Ocean City, Maryland. And he and his girlfriend, which we haven't met yet, were also at the shore at Fenwick Allen. One day, sitting by the pool at our uh, hotel, he called and said he wants to bring her down to meet uh, to meet us. So he came down to our hotel, and there, sitting by the pool, we had a nice uh, hour and a half. A nice, a nice with her. And when, when they left, I said to Lois, I said, uh, and she looked at me too and said, she's the one. She's, she's the one that should be part of our family. And, uh, so over the, ever since that, then we met her and had things done with her. We did, did things with her family, and so we got to meet them real well. And about six months after that first meeting, she writes to me and says, I want you to officiate at our wedding, uh, which kind of surprised me a bit. I no longer had my ministerial credentials, so someone suggested I uh, can get ordination papers online, and that's what I did, <laughs> and that's what I did to make it official. Uh, and the wedding was to be like a month after we had our, our car accident at the shore on the beach at daybreak, but with our injuries from the auto accident, we couldn't make that kind of a trip. So, so the wedding was in her backyard. But the thing about that is she uh, knew how to bond, bonding with people, and uh, we got to know her family, and she got to know our family, and whenever there was gatherings, both sides of the families are there. And as I sit there and experience all that and see how well the families are coming along, or getting along, I should say, uh, the thought occurred to me, this is the first time in many years that I've experienced peace with our family. And uh, that's the beautiful thing that happened to our family. Don't start laughing yet. I didn't say anything funny. <laughs> Let me get set up. <laughs> All right. Well, if you know me, and many of you do, I've been around here for a long time, and so is my dad. Um, <laughs> you know I'm not really one to talk about uh, any personal events or thoughts or 
feelings because it's not the person I am. But when I was asked this morning to talk about some of these things, I wasn't sure if I wanted to, but also, as many of you know, I was just in Greece. Um, and a big thing that I'll talk about later too, uh, but something that came back with me was kind of the need to be a little bit more open with some things. So today I'm talking about my tattoos, and uh, I have a lot of them, um, and some like them, some really don't like them, but they're special to me. Uh, they kind of get them for all sorts of different reasons. Um, some get them because of an event that happened, uh, some really just because they look cool. Um, some love their tattoos and some people really regret them, but I personally only get tattoos if they have a really specific meaning to me and uh, something that's happened in my life. So I think pictures are gonna come up here um, at some point. There's the first one. I got my first tattoo when I was 16. Uh, I wanted a tattoo long before then, but that's the age that I could convince my parents to actually let me get one. So I designed almost all of my tattoos myself. Um, and this one had kind of been in the works for about a year before they actually let me get one. This one's simple, it's not complex. Inside of the cross is Philippians at the top and 413 in Roman numerals on either side. Uh, the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it's kind of been my mantra for as long as I can remember that was coined by my mom from what I know. Um, it's a verse that's kind of always stayed with me and I've actually really relied on it through a lot of kind of seasons of my life. Uh, my second one is on the back of my calf. It's the only tattoo that's not on my right arm, and do I have a reason for that? No. It's just kind of how it works out. Um, that's, sorry. My, uh, my best friend actually helped me design this one. Um, this was a couple years ago. This is the coordinates for South Carolina and it's my home away from home. So we've gone there every year as far back as I can remember and it's the most special place to me personally. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it's been comforting for me. Whenever I go down there, I just really feel at home. So although it seems kind of simple, just having coordinates on the back of your leg, it is actually a special thing to me. So my third was actually inspired by my dad. I'll take credit for the design idea and uh, my tattoo artist for actually bringing it to life. But you can see in the picture a mountain and a lake in the back and there's kind of a granulated texture on the sides on the bottom there. That represents sand um, and the words resilience and perseverance on either side. Uh, I had to double check with my artist because I was actually scared that he spelled perseverance wrong because <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was perseverance. I thought there was another R in there. I'm glad I was wrong and he was right. <laughs> but uh, this kind of came from the trip that my family and I went on. Uh, we went to Maine and we had a place on the lake and paddle boards is one of the amenities. Um, and I was around 13 years old. We were paddle boarding around the lake just right in front of our, our house off the dock. And uh, I kind of saw the a break in the mountain across and that I wanted, I wanted to go to it. And as an adventurous 13 year old, I obviously wanted to check it out because it looked cool. Um, but it was kind of far away and I asked my dad and uh, he kind of doubted my ability to make it because it was about a mile away. Um, 
But he said, yeah, go for it. I really think he just kind of wanted to laugh after I got a quarter of the way and turned around. Um, but instead, I made it the full way out there, uh, and I found a bit of a beach with gorgeous, clear water, um, and we brought my family out there. I think we had canoes or kayaks. They made it out there like that. They didn't paddleboard the whole way. Um, but after that, uh, I think I impressed my dad because he always told me that when he found out, that's kind of when he found out a lot about my character. Um, I knew that the traits of resilience and perseverance uh, <laughs> were a part of it. <laughs> the fourth tattoo, um, this is the one that uh, is kind of a joke uh, to some people. Some people kind of like to make, poke a little bit of fun at it, just, oh, do you forget where you're from? Or, yeah, it's 717, the area code, that's what it's for. Um, and I don't have the best memory, but that's not quite the only reason I got it. Uh, I got this because this place uh, is very special to me, and I consider it the place I grew up, even though we kind of, or I was all over the place uh, for a lot of my childhood. Harrisburg, we were in Canada, if you guys didn't know that already and then we came back here, but um, not everyone can really say they enjoyed and are proud of where they grew up, but I can, so I had it put on me permanently. My fifth tattoo is one of my favorites. Um, this is a, my biggest one, too, and my most uh, visible one. Um, but I had the idea of getting a wolf and a forest. My artist said he'd gotten bored of that because it was way too common and overused. So I kind of let him have his choice with it. He chose to do the tiger. Um, and if you're close to me, you know that I actually kind of really hated my college experience, which is where this was from. Not because classes were hard and workload was difficult to manage or anything like that. I expected that, and I didn't have any problem with it. Um, I hated it because of Hate's a strong word, but I really, really did not like that place. I, I really didn't like it because of the environment I was in while I was there. It was beyond poor, and some would say like a toxic, toxic environment. Uh, I played lacrosse in college, and the culture on my team was not good, um, and the food also sucked. So, <laughs> but I was, I was really having a difficult time with it, and uh, I was on my own for the first time, eight hours away from home. Um, my mom texted me a verse one night, Isaiah 30, 21. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, so walk in it. That was my idea behind the tattoo. In the forest, you can see a path, and that represents the path that God has for me. The tiger is typically one of the scariest predators, and the forest can get dark and scary, too. This tattoo shows that even though this big scary tiger, which is a lot like all the big scary things that happen in life and loom over your life over time, it's there and the forest is also dark and unknown, just like your life, but God has that path for you and he'll protect you no matter what life kind of throws at you. So that's the idea behind that one. My six is this one. It's small and simple. Um, standing for my birthday along with my brother and my sisters. Um, I got this one with my sister, and we're doing our best to convince my brother to get it eventually. Uh, so it's actually kind of completed. Um, but he's more traditional than me because he's not uh, easy to convince. I've always liked sibling tattoos, um, and I am unfortunately 
they're here to hear me say it, but um, having a sibling is a different type of bond that you can't really have with anybody else. Um, and I think we've gotten a lot much closer since I've returned from college, uh, and that I'm pretty grateful for. So there's your piece, guys. Um, but my most recent uh, tattoo, not my last, but most recent, is a, uh, is a laurel leaf. Um, I got this one in Greece while I was there. Uh, this is the only one that I have that wasn't completely planned out. This was pretty spontaneous. We decided that we would be open to getting them literally in the airport when we got there. <laughs> so um, we decided uh, that we would start thinking about ideas. And uh, Vicki, who's here today and went with me, uh, she told me that she wanted to get a laurel leaf. Um, my original interest in this was because it was what the crown is made of uh, for the winning Olympian, Olympians and what they receive. Uh, and if you know, Athens is where we went, and that's where the first Olympics was, first modern-day Olympics. Um, and you guys all know that I'm a sports guy, and I like that it represented victory and triumph. So that was my original meaning for the tattoo. Um, however, when I, I kind of figured out that it meant a lot more than that after I got it, but I still figured it out. Um, first off, I wanted to thank all of you guys again for the support and prayers for my trip. Uh, many of you prayed that it would have an effect on me and give me something that stuck with me uh, kind of for the rest of my life. I didn't think you guys were praying for tattoos to stick on me for the rest of my life, but um, I was journaling one day, which I tried to do every day there to kind of debrief what we were doing uh, and what I was experiencing. And I realized that tattoo meant a lot more to me than I kind of originally thought. Um, and as a lot of you guys know, the last two years have kind of been a whirlwind for me. Um, I've been doing all sorts of different things. Uh, I decided to leave college. Um, I thought I was gonna go to another college. I decided to give a career in the car business a go, and then decided to leave the car business because I met a super tall dude who started coming to our church, and uh, he decided that he kind of believed in me and I should give real estate a go. So on top of that, um, I'd just gotten out of a long relationship for over three years, and I know that might not seem a lot, like a lot, but to an 18, 19-year-old kid, uh, that's a lot in a short span of time. And I'm not saying I'm older now, I'm only about a year or two older than that, so. But it still seems like a long time. Uh, that breakup actually really affected me. Um, it also affected my family a lot. Um, but on the trip, while I was journaling, I realized I was really kind of at peace with it all. Uh, I was a very closed-off person because of it, and now I feel much more open to being able to talk about it and kind of make new relationships possible too. Uh, and to me, that's a huge victory and triumph and the best I could have received from that trip. Um, so tattoos can really be a lot of different things for a lot of different people. They can be art or an experience, a meaning, or just really kind of a part of a chapter in your life. Um, and that's why they're my beautiful thing, because uh, they're all of those things to me. So. I'm glad I could share that with you all. Thank you. Hello, I'm Leah Conley. 
those who do not know. Um, and I know Josh sent out a few emails and there were some prayer chain emails sent for me. I'm the one who is pregnant and then delivered super early. And um, so when I read the email that this is the week for the Beautiful Things service, I just thought, wow, that is literally perfect timing. Um, because when Chris and I think about something thankful that God is working in our lives, um, I wasn't really sure what to bring for the table because um, it would be you guys, LBIC, and I thought maybe I could bring the church directory, but I didn't know where that was, so. <laughs> um, but just, just love this tradition and just the opportunity to get up here and say, you all have been such a beautiful thing in such a way um, that God has worked in our lives just from we had a meal train that's like got to be breaking records by now for how long it's been and so many of you have jumped on that and uh, many of you have even watched my children so my husband could work while I was in the hospital or so I can go be in the NICU with our baby which is huge and Pastor Josh and Pastor Jane also um, have come and sat with Chris and I uh, separately and listened to us and prayed for us and brought us coffee and all three of those things were pretty life-changing for us so we're um, I, we're just at a loss for words of just how grateful we felt and um, you're part of God's provision in our life and so thank you thank you thank you thank you um, so my beautiful thing that I brought I actually couldn't put on the table um, my other beautiful thing besides all of you um, it's this bracelet which is definitely a beauty is in the eye of the beholder kind of thing because this is a gross ratty hospital bracelet that I can't take off yet because our miracle is still um, being worked out but our little baby is still in the NICU so I have to keep it on um, but our story started on um, September 4th I was 24 weeks pregnant and woke up to a significant bleeding episode uh, which was really scary and um, so I was waiting for the ambulance and I just prayed a very short desperate prayer of like Lord you've got to hold my baby because even though she was inside my body it was a, like the most out of control I've ever felt and I don't really think of myself as like a controlling person or something that I struggle with or but I think just uh, we realize our human nature likes control a lot when we find ourselves in these sort of situations and I yeah it was just really scary and super vulnerable and so I was rushed to the hospital and um, then they decided that I should go to Harrisburg because I was so early in my pregnancy they have like a level three NICU there if she needed to be delivered um, and I didn't even know babies could be delivered at 24 weeks but apparently they can so I was transferred to Harrisburg and then all these high-risk doctors um, looked at ultrasounds and realized I had a condition of my placenta that put me at a really high risk for a life-threatening bleed. So at just 24 weeks pregnant, I found out that I would need to be hospitalized until delivery, which would, which would have been um, 10 weeks. And I'd never been at the hospital longer than four days, so <laughs> 10 weeks seemed like a very daunting prognosis and to be an hour away from family and yeah it was just um, as you can imagine very unexpected and intense um, so um, all of the days in the hospital 
um, were as long and lonely as I was worried there would be. <laughs> um, just sitting in a room by myself, staring at a wall, and anticipating a very risky surgery that ended up requiring a total hysterectomy and also intersected with the birth of one of my children. That could happen at any second. So it was all really heavy and it, was, it required daily and hourly um, just tests of how much do I really trust the Lord? Because again, I was, everything was out of my control. I literally just had to sit there. I had to be on bed rest. I had to sit in a hospital bed and trust that the Lord was working out this for us. And even with the like most amazing doctors and all the, the doctors there were incredible, um, I knew like only, Lord, only you know, the hour that she will be born and how she will be born and um, and just I spent a lot of time praying and, and God really met me and and those hospital the walls of that hospital room that I initially was pushing against so much and and just resisting really ended up being a sort of cocoon for me and God totally met me in really special ways of just being forced to sit on a bed and trust him and and it was super scary and super hard. Um, but he kept reminding me of his sufficiency, um, that he is enough, that he is in control. And um, I can't unpack the sovereignty of God in 10 minutes or in this life. Um, but it really felt like, okay, I've been led to the shores of a Red Sea. And this is like, yeah, it was just like a moment of having to totally trust the Lord to provide a dry path across it for me and for Chris and, and for our baby. Um, and so just feeling like um, I had to put like my money where my mouth was. Like, okay, Leah, you say you trust the Lord, but did, was that just because you felt like you could be involved and be controlling things? Or do you really trust him? Like... And I think that this this was like a really eye-opening situation of just like, okay, he has given me everything I need. He's given me his word. He's given me his body, which is you guys. He's given me his presence. And that had to be enough. And so I spent 47 days um, in the hospital. And thankfully, they were all flawless. Like, all of my vitals were perfect. All of her vitals were perfect. I had multiple ultrasounds a week, people coming. I had non-stress tests three times a day, and they'd ask me all the questions three times a day. I'd be like, no, you know, my blood pressure is perfect. Everything's perfect for 47 days. So it was really confusing. I even, one of my consultations with the doctor, I was like, it does make sense for me to be here, right? Like, since that one thing that happened, everything's been perfect. And he was like, yeah, I mean, everything's been perfect because you've been sitting on a bed and it's working so and I knew also that like God God was working too and helping me stay pregnant as long as possible um, so um, uh, so the next part was um, <laughs> my human heart realizing that I started to really love the certainty of the plan because all of my doctors and all the surgery teams, they all had a plan, and I really liked this plan. And it was at 34 weeks, we'll have um, you know, a planned C-section, and 
all the teams were on board, it was on the calendar, and I met all the people that would be there doing the surgeries. I mean, there were like literally three different surgeons and surgery teams that had to be there for it. And um, so, yeah, I felt like I really liked that. I liked that there was a plan. I liked that everybody knew the plan. I mean, they literally were like having meetings about me and stuff. I was a pretty big deal um, at the hospital. Um, <laughs> but then, of course, um, at 30 weeks, um, I had another significant bleeding episode that I woke up to. And so the plan was totally dashed. And I knew that when I woke up, like, okay, well, this means there is no plan, and the plan is an emergency, which meant Chris wouldn't be able to be in the room, and it meant all sorts of things. Um, I wouldn't be able to be awake for the birth. So that was a moment where I was like, okay, letting go again and feeling like even my, even the plan, which was not my plan, was better than no plan and an emergency. And so I was just kind of having to like revisit again in this situation, like, hey, do I really trust you, Lord? Do I really, really trust you? So I was rushed into the OR, everything was crazy. They were trying to call people, make, you know, and, um, and my anesthesiologist was like really unique character. So it was a really hectic moment leading up to the surgery. Um, and then there was a misunderstanding. I thought the surgeon that was standing there, I didn't know who he was, I'd never met him before, and I thought he was a resident. So I was like literally about to be put under general anesthesia thinking a resident is doing this extremely high-risk surgery. And I just like looked up at the OR lights like, okay, Jesus, like you have got to have this in your hands because this feels really chaotic and scary and I was actually quite thankful they were putting me under general anesthesia because I was like I just can't handle being conscious anymore this is really intense um, but um, thankfully she was delivered healthily and perfectly at 3 30 that morning that was um, on October 20th so I was 30 weeks pregnant it was a whole month earlier than the early plan um, but some like really cool testimony points um, were the guy that I thought was a resident was actually the lead, like head of all the high risk doctors and he has been delivering babies longer than I've been alive. So he was actually able to do like a phenomenal job. And um, and then he also said, you know, it's, it's hard to tell, but because of the condition of my placenta, had we waited till that 34 week deadline, it would have actually grown into my bladder because my placenta was growing like outside of my uterus, that was the whole issue. It was going rogue on me. So, <laughs> so he was like, had we waited till that scheduled date, like it's likely it would have been even more dangerous and more severe. So that was really neat, just finding out God's timing of letting her grow as long as possible inside of me until it got too dangerous for me. And then she was a whole pound heavier than she should have been. She was three pounds, eight ounces when she was born. Um, but for no reason that we know, she was a whole pound heavier than expected. Um, my placenta also was thicker and healthier than many are, and it was already partially detached, which means it should have been weaker and like functioning at a lesser degree. Um, but the surgeon said actually it was like incredibly healthy and thick. And um, my recovery from the surgery was smoother and faster and better than even some of my other regular C-sections. And that was so surprising. And really, there's no explanation for it other than that I had a lot of people praying for me. 
Um, and she has had zero difficulties at all since. She just has been a total champ in the NICU, just growing and um, developing like she would have been in my womb. So all of those things, there were like so many little miracles within this big miracle for our family of just God just really bringing us through that that Red Sea. So I, I hope that I don't ever forget how God really does have us. And even when there's when pregnancies go awry and when babies are born too early and when you have to spend an absurd amount of days in the hospital and like Connor said, the food sucks. I can really relate with that. Um, <laughs> that we can trust him. We can trust him. And, and that his... Um, that his character tells me that he's worthy of trust. And actually, it, it doesn't even matter how this situation plays out. Like, he's already provided hope in Jesus Christ. And so I think it was just all this stuff that I thought I knew that was really put to the test um, through this situation of just like, okay, he's worthy of my trust. He's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my life. Um, and I just pray he gets so much glory from this story because anything hard that we go through as believers is only worth it if he gets glory. So, you know, I'm thankful that I get to stand here with a baby who is healthy and in the NICU, but there were many moments in the hospital where I didn't know that that would be the outcome and was forced to be like, Lord, you are worthy of my trust and my praise. And um, so I think... Um, that is the tension of, of Christian hope. It's not just optimism that's like, yeah, we're gonna hope for a great outcome. You know, that's just like empty worldly optimism. Christian hope is so much better because, because it looks backwards at like, Lord, you already defeated death. You already like freed us from the fear of death. And you already provided an answer in Jesus. So my hope can't be shaken even in this really scary situation. And even when um, it did feel very shaken, I could still choose to trust him. So that is my beautiful thing. Um, I want to read something called The Slow Work of God that I think goes quite along with uh, what's been shared this morning. Um, just so you know, what we've been doing this morning is gospeling together. We're preaching the gospel through our lives. And this is what Teilhard de Chardin writes. He says, above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability. And that, it even may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Do not try to force them on as though you could be today. What time, that is to say, grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you would be. 
Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. I want to share a church story now. This has to do with all of us. It has to do with the Compassion House. It's something that only a few of you know as we move forward. A bit of history. The Compassion House is the house that we are purchasing in the beginning of December to be used for refugee resettlement. Years ago, I looked at that house, and I drove past that house regularly with all of its furniture collecting the rain from the sky outside sitting in the front yard. Um, we actually helped the family at one time over there do some work to the home. And, um, I, I remember talking to somebody here thinking, man, that would be a great house for us to have if they ever sold it. And, um, and the person I say, uh, was talking to, they said, yeah, you should maybe go get like first right of refusal or something so we would have the first opportunity to buy it. But I was lazy and never did that. So, um, and then all of a sudden, last uh, a year and a half ago, I saw uh, a whole lot of trees getting cut down over in the yard. And so I went over and I talked to what had become the new owners who had bought the house from this family. And uh, they, were, they were cutting down trees. And I thought, well, that opportunity is gone. It's since passed. No houses go up for sale that quick of a turn. Uh, they were going to, their plan was to have their daughter move into it. Then their plan was to flip it. But um, anyway, I thought that was, that was it. And uh, then in June, I got a phone call um, that was asking if we were interested in buying this house next door. And originally, I was super excited. Um, Jane and my, uh, well, I think my, uh, Jane got this from my wife. I have great ideas, but follow through is not my strong suit. Um, and so I was originally super excited. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's a lot of work. Um, and so I was like, oh, great idea. And I told Brian, he was super excited. And then the next day I saw him, I was like, I don't really think we should do this. It's too much work. And he's like, no, you know, it's Brian. So everything, <laughs> everything went back up on the up again. Uh, so there's back and, and, and forth and um, over, over months, whether it be with, uh, be with Brian, Jane, or the leadership team as we've talked about it, um, it just kept pushing forward in a good direction. And then we started to talk about it congregationally, and you guys like caught on to it. And you gave $137,000 in six weeks. What the heck? Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, that's only half of what you gave. The other half's coming in the next two years, which is equally as awesome. 137 grand, six weeks. So anyway, uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we, we hosted our ministerial meeting. So gathering of Mannheim Township pastors, we, we hosted this month. We were over at the church house, and uh, coincidentally, the, there's a guest usually every month, and the guest this month, unbeknownst to me, was Andrew Mashis from Church World Service. I thought, well, that's kind of funny. We just decided to buy this house, and Church World Services just showing up on our, on our doorstep, so to speak, to talk about refugee resettlement with the other churches in the, in the area. And so he starts sharing, and I'm like, hey, we're buying this house. And he's like, really? So there's this thing going back and forth. He didn't really know what we were doing, even though we have one of our folks who shares a desk with him across from him. She's really good at keeping things under the lid. Um, so afterwards, we, we walk over, we're walking back to the parking lot over here, and I said, do you, do you have any ideas? He's like, oh, I got lots of ideas. And, and he says, what are you doing for a contractor? 
And I was like, well, we got some bids coming in. And he said, well, he began to tell me this story. So the Benitez family, which uh, our refugee resettlement help team helped resettle in 2022. So it's been a year or so, but it kind of opened us up to this idea of refugee resettlement. Um, they needed, I think it was a washer or dryer, which was it? It does. Washer. And so Curtis books on this team, and um, he advocates. I think he got one from MCC. But then that was the genesis. He was like, to MCC, which is Mennonite Central Committee, he's like, we need to do more for refugees. And so this is the story that Andrew's telling me through this washer um, and, and the prodding of Curtis. Uh, this new organization forms between Mennonite Central Committee, Church World Service, and Mennonite Disaster Service. And uh, Andrew goes to me, he says, well, I don't, I don't know, man, but you might be able to have Mennonite Disaster Service do the renovations for you. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so he got back to his uh, office. He emailed me the application, and um, I filled it out the day of. And the following Monday, a team of five people from the local chapter of Mennonite Disaster Service came to the church. We walked over. They walked through it. And they said, well, we, we have what we need. We have a board meeting. We'll have to, we'll have to let you know. Um, but um, it looks like, like this could be a project that we could take on. So uh, I think it was a week and a half ago. I was, um, I don't know why, I was reading email on my phone in the lobby. And I opened up this email from uh, a guy named Brian. And I was like, yes! It was Jane and Mike just in, the, and uh, I was like, they're going to do it. Friends, MDS is taking on our project and is going to do the renovations for our church house, or the Compassion House. So cool. So there's numbers of things. Obviously, the first thing is financial. It's going to help us in a huge way. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't need you to still give the money that you pledge, because we didn't get enough to cover everything quite yet. Um, but it does mean it's going to help huge with finances, but it's also going to bring, it's going to give us opportunity to help, uh, you know, not only put money into this thing, but um, to put our hands at work into this thing. And it's also, it doesn't mean that we're responsible for it, like taking charge of it, which is fantastic, because that was what scared me off in the first place. Um, but uh, it's going to give us a a chance and an opportunity to network with other churches and people in our area to make this thing happen. Uh, and so I just wanted that, that is, this thing has been a beautiful thing. That's been a slow kind of work, uh, even though it maybe has felt fast, it's felt slow on my end. Um, but I think uh, what Chardin writes is, is right. Like, life is slow, friends, sometimes. Uh, and, and we look for these, these lightning flash miracles of God. But man, if you look back over the course of your life or over any given time, I think those miracles just show up like a slow kind of blooming flower, right? It's going to eventually crack the dirt. It's going to grow. And one day, like that bud is just going, it's going to explode. And we focus on when that explodes, but we're a part of something that just continues to grow. And that's the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing among us. Uh, it's so fun to be a part of a church family that, I mean, we're hearing this in story and we're, we're experiencing this in a ministry together and we experience it week after week. And um, 
I, I'm just grateful, so grateful to God for, for what God's doing among us. So I want to invite us. Brian's going to uh, lead us in one last song. This is going to be our, our sending for the morning. Uh, but thank you guys. Thanks, everybody, for sharing. Lloyd, Khan, um, Leah, thank you guys for sharing stories this morning. Um, and thank you guys for trusting us, all of us, all of you, one another with our stories. Let's stay and let's sing together.